This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl, and I'm Esther Ikoro, and we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hi, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? It's going awesome. Wow, where are we today? We are in a really cool um, Super Pro studio. Very moody. It's very moody in here. I it's, like it. I like it. It's it's um it's kind of dark, but I'm kind of into the darkness. I was singing earlier, "Hello Darkness," my old friend, and that's kind of what it feels like. However, we have something it's really depressing. But go ahead. it is, it is. But <laughs> we're, we have someone in the studio right now with us for our podcast, and I'm really excited because we're going to have a conversation around something that. I have deep passion for. That's one word, yes. I do. I'm so passionate about this topic. And the person that we have in our studio um, has tremendous knowledge and resources and information and experience and um, just, you know, years of, um, you know, visuals around what this space is. And we're going to be talking today about supplier diversity. Yes, this this topic that we're bringing back from a, a different perspective. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it in the very beginning when we first launched the podcast, right? But it was the supplier diversity from the supplier side. Yeah. And so now we actually have someone from the procurement side. Yeah, that is very important. I think this is the person that everybody kind of wants to talk to or someone (laughs) in this position, you know, instead of us like talking amongst ourselves, having all these theories, let's let's hear it straight from... (laughs) Jason Tremue. Hello. Hello, Jason. Welcome to our podcast, the Honest Field Guy podcast. Thank you. It is good to be here. It is, it is great because, um, you know, in this space that I've been with my company for a long time, I've met so many people that are in supplier diversity, whether they're heads of supplier diversity, people that work in supplier diversity, um, people that program it, that just work specifically in procurement, that look for talent. And I've really been excited about you particularly, Jason, because you are one of the most engaging, interesting, approachable, authentic, friendly, knowledgeable people in this space. Very honest, which is perfect for our podcast, right, Esther? Yeah. And it helps that he has a good smile. A great smile. <laughs> it's irresistible. Yeah, you, I think starts- so. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about again? <laughs> I get really distracted. Where's all my money? I know. <laughs> I was saying this is my first podcast, so I'm really excited to wow. be on this field guide. It's a good place to start. Yeah. So before we start talking to you, Jason, I do want to read some information about you because people need to know how amazing and tremendous you are and your career. So 
In 2016, Jason joined Facebook to launch and lead the company's supplier diversity program and create more opportunity for diverse-owned firms to do business with Facebook and the people and communities that Facebook connects. Prior to joining Facebook, he designed and delivered the community impact initiatives for Super Bowl 50, resulting in more than $20 million in grants for Bay Area nonprofits and contracts for local diverse-owned businesses. Jason was formerly a managing director at REDF, a venture philanthropy founded by KKR co-chairman George R. Roberts, where he led business development and strategic partnerships. Jason earned a bachelor's degree in business administration from Covenant College, a master's degree in international development economics from the University of San Francisco, and has completed the executive program in nonprofit leadership from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Wow, Jason. (laughs) It's always weird having your stuff read back to you. That (laughs) punching. I mean. At, At the end of the day, my career has been defined by trying to help connect people to opportunities and bridge uh, the positions that I'm in and the places that I work to folk that need to be in those spaces, want to be in those spaces, are going to excel in those spaces, um, but haven't had the right connection. So a bridge building connection, and I've been fortunate to do it for now almost, gosh, two years, 20 years. You have a lot of experience and a lot of data around this topic. Um, I think the best place for us to start this conversation is to just get right into you telling me what supplier diversity actually means. Because it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. And some people have no clue what it is. Yeah. So supplier diversity is probably a a word and a phrase that will go out of uh, use over some time, I hope. But essentially, uh, our company and companies like us buy goods and services from thousands of small and medium businesses all around the world to get our jobs done, accomplish our missions. And supplier diversity is, frankly, going proactively into communities where talent lives in those entrepreneurs that are underrepresented in our companies and helping those entrepreneurs and their businesses connect to the contracting that we do uh, with businesses to everything from build our buildings to um, do market research, all kinds of goods and services. Is this a new concept, supplier diversity? Where did it come from? Because when I think about my early launch of my business, Burt Creative, I don't know if supplier diversity was a word or a term. So what is this space and when did it start? And are we in a place now where it's blowing up or is it shrinking? Yeah, I think I'll answer the last part of your question first and then go back to the history. I think supplier diversity has stagnated in many respects, and I'll come back to kind of why. But basically, it's been around for uh, since the mid part of the 20th century. Um, The Nixon administration uh, seeing that contracts from the federal government were not going uh, to minority and women-owned businesses in particular, um, put that, codified that into law in the country that federal agencies would be asked about their contracting with minority businesses and would have to achieve targets and goals. And really the supplier diversity industry was born out of that desire to see more of those federal contracts going to those same taxpayers just from those communities that had not been tapped up to this point. Um, You fast forward some years and corporations uh, also who were contractors to the federal government were being asked about their own efforts. So imagine uh, a large company that's doing business with the Department of Defense. Uh, The Department of Defense has a a goal and a mandate around increasing opportunities for minority-owned contractors. 
well, if that large company needs to win that contract, they need to show how they're going to uh, procure goods and services from minority businesses um, on behalf of uh, that contract that they're 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 competing for. So you started to see corporations get into the space, um, and then of course now, if you look at where our economy is heading, if you look at the demographics of this country, um, we're looking at entrepreneurship uh, really gaining. Um, and and this is now decades old, significant momentum among um, black and brown people. And you look at women-owned businesses growing into what's called the middle market. So businesses uh, getting over a million dollars and above, growing six times faster into that space than all other businesses. Uh, entrepreneurship is really, um, you know, I always say that the most likely entrepreneur to start a business tomorrow is a Latina. And I think when we look at who uh, buys goods and services, particularly B2B, um, and where those goods and services are being, um, where innovation is happening, uh, you see it in these communities. And so I think while there's momentum on that side, from an industry perspective, we are at a place where I think people are, people don't know what that word means. And then when they hear it, they think it means something that's 50 years old. And I think when you look at whether you're a procurement professional at a company, um, your job is to find the best talent and bring the best talent to bear in your mar- uh, from the marketplace to your company. I happen to believe that that talent is being found in these diverse communities. Um, I think the statistics bear me out. But I think we need to see more people approaching it that way than approaching it as a check-the-box activity. So when you talked about the government sort of initiating um, this supplier diversity space under the Nixon administration, which is fascinating to me, um, why did corporations begin to join into that process? I'm, and I, I have my own ideas around it, why that could be. One, I would automatically think, well, if a corporation wants to do business with the government as a federal contractor, then they would have to be compliant with what the government's asking them to do, which is to ensure that their partners and even the people that work at their companies are women, African-American, Latino, and other people um, of underrepresented marginalized groups, right? But but is that the reason why corporations joined in and decided to do this? Or was it's an economic decision, right? I think it's pretty clear that the rationale for many companies that got into this space uh, was out of compliance. And when you look back, even those that have chronicled the history of supplier diversity, the compliance era um, certainly came about as federal contractors, large private companies who wanted to do business, as you said, with the federal government needed to comply with the requirements the government was placing upon them um, if they wanted to do business. I think the 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 a shift a slight shift happened when you started to also look at those same companies say they're providing goods and services to the federal government well they also maybe provide goods and services to consumers and when those consumers in those in terms of who they're trying to grow their um, uh, grow their 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 market share with if those consumers are increasingly black and brown if those consumers are women um, they also wanted to show that they were. Uh, standing up 
uh, standing alongside supporting businesses from those communities. So there was an economic imperative now that was not only about being compliant with government contracts, but now looking at where market demographics were trending and saying, if that's our future consumer, we need to show up in those communities in a real way. And this is one of the avenues to show that we are committed to the growth and sustainability of these communities. Yeah. So, you know, what's what's interesting, um, I always have to talk to um, small businesses about the difference between supplier diversity and talent diversity. And you are on the supplier diversity side. You're not on the Facebook talent diversity side, right? You're not looking to hire people of color to work at Facebook. You're actually looking for businesses like mine to supply goods and services to Facebook. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those two things? Because you do have counterparts on the HR side. That's right. And there is a distinction, um, especially if you look at the tech sector and the challenges that we have both recruiting and retaining, uh, particularly black and Latino employees, um, promoting um, uh, women, uh, even as we're making progress in those areas. Uh, and veterans too, actually, right? I mean, the veteran space, is that also, that's not a diverse space, right? Because there is a distinction between the veterans, right? And, and other people that companies are looking to hire, or is that distinction blurred now? I think the question any company has to ask is, how does a diversity of experiences help them solve problems better? And when we look at the diversity that comes from race and ethnicity, that comes from gender, um, that comes from veteran status, um, ability, um, we know that all those things can contribute to a better outcome if they're around a table rather than uh, a homogeneous group of people uh, trying to solve a problem. But to be very clear, when it comes to solving for the supply chain of a company and the talent that they need, uh, supplier diversity is explicitly focused on growing the opportunities for uh, black, uh, Hispanic, Native American, Asian American, so race and ethnicity, minority-owned companies, um, for, for women-owned companies, in our case at Facebook, for uh, veteran LGBT and differently abled-owned uh, able companies. So those are the areas of focus we have, and we're really looking there at the owner uh, ownership of the company. I hear what you're saying about, you know, diversity helping solve problems and things along those lines. And I also really, it it's kind of something that we echoed here when we've talked about other companies, for instance, Carol's Daughters being purchased and just there seeming to be a blind spot in some industries about the power of representation from that side of things. Why do you think tech companies seem to be so far ahead on this? Because I don't feel from my perspective that that sentiment and that understanding and that insight is echoed across industries. What do you think is holding some other industries back as a whole? And how can um, diverse owned companies kind of break through those blind spots? Well, I think there's a, probably a couple ways to answer that question. One is when it comes to the supply chain side, business at the end of the day is relational. And, you know, if I even think back to how I first met you, Jinja, and, and Esther through, through the business, it really came about through another company that you were doing work for and us being exposed to that because uh, in our roles as supplier diversity professionals, we're very always very anxious and, um, and, and, and excited to meet companies 
that are doing business with our peer peer company. So when we look at tech, one of the challenges, and particularly tech uh, companies that are maybe newer uh, tech companies, we don't see yet the levels of black and Hispanic uh, representation in those companies. And if by definition business is relational, it then is very likely that in many cases our companies are not yet reaching uh, into the entrepreneurial talent of these communities because the relationships are not there or as fully formed. So part of why supplier diversity, I think, in the tech space both has in some respects lagged behind but also now I think has an opportunity to to really push ahead is because we are very clearly focused on the workforce side and increasing the numbers and growth and retention and promotion of people of color, of women, et cetera. But we also now also see the value of bringing these entrepreneurs and their companies into our ecosystem and supporting our business. Um, And I think the tools that we have, which maybe we can talk about as well, some of the ways that we think about um, accessing these companies, meeting these companies, uh, reflects a lot of who our cultures are as companies. And I think those are hopeful signs in an industry that has, in many respects, kind of plateaued. You know, Jason – I love listening to you talk about this topic because you're really passionate about it. Why did you choose um, to spend your career doing supplier diversity? Because this is this is an endless, epic fight that battle. I mean, it it is it is exhausting, and there are people that have dropped out of the space because it's, you know, the need is great. The need is great. There's a hunger and a thirst for all of us that haven't had the opportunity to participate in supply chains with major corporations to build wealth. We haven't been able to do that. There's, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, and we don't have to go into all those. But, but you know, you have to have a lot of stamina to stick with this. Why did you choose the space? What happened? Tell us a little bit about, you know, your story when you were, you know, younger and coming through the spaces because you could have gone anywhere. You could have been an investment banker. You know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, what did, what did you? Why did you pick this? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, the short answer is because I get to work with people like yourselves, entrepreneurs that inspire me. You're out there solving real problems in the world through your companies, and I get a chance to touch that every day at some level. Um, And that's just really inspiring for me. It's always been inspiring for me. But it starts for me um, actually right here in Chicago, and uh, I was born here. Um, My uh, mother was a teacher uh, in Lawndale. Um, My father uh, was a minister in our church, and he would go on visitation uh, you know, to families that were um, experiencing tough times. And he took me as a young, young, young kid to Cabrini Green. And I remember at the time, you know, with that kind those kinds of parents, we were, we, you know, I had, we had income, but we were not, you know, particularly well off. But I remember going to Cabrini Green and um, seeing a family that had just lost a son to gun violence. And it was, even as a young child, it was very clear to me that there was a lot of, um, injustice in the world. There was a lot of challenges uh, in the world. And fortunate, I was fortunate to grow up in a community of people who have dedicated their lives to um, serving others, have dedicated their lives to um, improving communities. Um, and uh, I got to college. I didn't really know what uh, I wanted to do. And I had a professor come um, my junior year and said he was starting this new uh, minor in uh, economic development. And I was a business major, so I had some sense of how the marketplace was working. And I read this book um, by a guy named David Bornstein. It's called The Price of a Dream. It was about the Grameen Bank and Muhammad Yunus. 
And this is the late 90s. And at the time, um, the conventional wisdom was, you know, you had all these uh, very poor entrepreneurs all over the world trying to sustain themselves, their families, their lives. And you couldn't make loans to them because they would squander the money. That was the conventional wisdom. And what Muhammad Yunus and now the whole microfinance industry has disproved, uh, you know, is that that lie that these are actually some of the most resourceful people who had incredibly high repayment rates when they were at, given access to credit, a basic building block for growing a company, access to capital. Um, and I ran the Supplier Diversity Program for Super Bowl 50, which was played in, in the Bay Area in 2016. We ran this program and we eliminated the word small in front of any PR that we did. Our CEO, we had him coached not to say small. Now, it wasn't because we weren't going to work with small businesses. Of course, we know in this country, like more than 50% of GDP, uh, non-farm, non-public GDP is, is generated by small uh, and medium businesses. But we eliminated the word small because in people's minds, Super Bowl is not a small thing. Now, what people don't realize if you've never kind of seen it behind the scenes is it's a series of a lot of small things that go into making up the single most, you know, watched, uh, highly watched sporting event uh, in the world. Um, But we wanted to be very clear that businesses in our market, diverse owned businesses, minority owned businesses, women owned businesses, other diverse owned businesses that were local to the Bay Area could deliver. And now, did I know that? Did I know every business that was going to be able to work on the Super Bowl? Of course not. But we wanted in our language to communicate very clearly that this was about connecting qualified businesses to opportunities. And when we do that and we approach it that way, I think we help our colleagues who may be predisposed to think there's a gap, it's going to be harder, it's going to be slower – Um, We don't help them when we have the attitude that says there's going to be a gap or those kinds of things. We, we, I think, give them – we empower them to be our champions and advocates when we assume a position that these businesses are going to be successful. There are a lot of companies that are are diverse owned that don't check that box, right? So when you're, well, you work for a large, large, large company. When you're at any of these other companies that are still maybe at the beginning stages of trying to source diverse suppliers, they might not see the companies that are really executing at high levels, but never check that box. Why do you think that some people choose not to go through that door? And is it is it beneficial for them? There's a great article actually in the Chicago Sun-Times about three years ago that discusses this issue explicitly for Black-owned businesses. Um, it's a great article because it does show that every entrepreneur approaches this differently as we would expect. Everybody's their own person. What I would say is this. You know, I mentioned that supplier diversity as a term, I hope at some point is no longer the the term that we use to describe what we're trying to do. What would you rather use? I don't know that I have a better marketing uh, marketing slogan yet, but I, I, I talk about it in terms of talent, which can be confusing Then we because when we're talking about the workplace side. But um, I do think we need to 
be very explicit about what our goals are, which is creating jobs and wealth in communities of color, uh, among other diverse communities that have experienced historic and still face um, uh, uh, systemic racism um, and other isms that keep them out of uh, opportunities, um, competitive opportunities. But I think we need to help entrepreneurs see that this is an entry point. This is not their label. Um, and I think that is tough. I can only say it from, you know, you as an entrepreneur, you all running your company. Um, you know, we go to these supplier diversity events. Um, and I think one of the challenges around that is we're asking these entrepreneurs to label themselves for our benefit. And I don't think that that is serving the entrepreneur well. I think I'll tell that, you right now it's not. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, it's just not. I mean, I, I, I tell you when I – when I go to these things, and I've actually, I have to admit, I've stopped going because I feel a sense of shame that I have to. I yeah. really do because I, I feel like, and you know, and I, I've been in business for quite a while, um, and I don't really want to be the crab in the barrel because that's how I yep. feel when I'm there, and I don't like that feeling, and I don't even want my employees to be in that space, and and I don't want my community to have to feel like they're we have to suffer to go through these 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 hoops because other businesses don't. I think that's right. And from our perspective, and now I can, you know, speaking very explicitly about the Facebook supplier diversity program, our pivot is much more to the industry conferences that you would go to that are uh, relevant to the industry that you work in and curating um, those entrepreneurs um, those companies that uh, we feel are either um, primed to do business with us or we want to explore a relationship with. But we're going to do that out of a space where you would be anyway. Um, the supplier diversity construct, remember, is, you know, it still has its roots in, uh, in, in, in law. And I think we always know the purpose of law uh, to, to, to disrupt something that needed disruption in a very systematic way. But at ta- over time, we need to pivot to our strengths, and our strengths are the talent in these communities and what they're doing and the, the representation. I think specifically in places like you operate, the creative space, the digital space. Who is the audience you're talking to? Well, if you look at the digital data, you know, Latinos, uh, uh, African Americans – over index on their use of social media. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at how are brands going to communicate to those influential audiences, um, both as consumers, but also as influencers of culture, you have to be looking at these communities. And so it makes uh, sense from that perspective of your competitive advantage to actually reach the audiences because you reflect uh, some of those experiences and an understanding of the audience that you're trying to reach. It doesn't mean you can only reach those audiences, but it does mean you have an advantage in doing so. And I think more companies should be approaching this from that perspective rather than this will help me increase my spend with a minority woman-owned business. We love Instagram. I love Instagram. Oh my god! Obviously. I mean, we're just. We're, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I mean, Facebook is great, but uh, Instagram is literally the best channel ever. Yeah, unless something I mean, we're VR not... comes up that sucks me in. Um, 
I'm rolling with I Instagram. Mean, we're not we're not even saying that because you're here, Jason, and you work for Facebook, I aka am. Instagram. <laughs> Esther's like, no, I am joking. I mean, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, I think that you you bring up a really good point because um, when I'm when I'm out there, um, you know, with trainings and workshops, you know, people are very confused about how to leverage Instagram as a small business. And my piece is always about, well, number one, it's a great place to acquire new talent. Um, It's an amazing place for you to have conversations and share knowledge and to present your expertise as a business owner. I mean, a small business that's not leveraging Instagram for their business in terms of communicating how great they are and also even sharing other people in their communities that are great. I mean, it's, it's the it's literally the best platform to do it. I mean, I, I find so many opportunities and resources on Instagram, and I can learn about my clients there. I mean, it's not the only channel that I look at, right? I mean, I do a lot of searching um, online, you know, on Google. And of course, um, I leverage, you know, YouTube. I use Facebook and, and LinkedIn and things like that. But as far as um, strategy and and creative ideas and visual aesthetic and really learning somebody's level of um, of um, of expertise in, in terms of how they're presenting their messages and, and what's really in their in their heads. There's no better place to do it than Instagram. And you can also catch people doing things that they shouldn't be doing, which is also information, right? I mean, you can see the things that people make mistakes at, which are like, ooh, that was kind of not the best judgment. Maybe I should really think about this again. I, you know, this is this is <laughs> may sound funny. I was way late to Instagram as a, as a user. I had been working at Facebook um, and I had tried to kind of understand what Instagram was about. Um, And I'll use this in reference to just, (laughs) this is hilarious. No, I'm just picturing you like, I'm picturing you like looking at a sandwich, like, should I take a picture of this and post it? It was was more, no, it was more basic than that. I literally could not figure out how to slow down people's stories. I literally didn't even like, know. stop the story yes, so you could read so it? so I could actually read the thing. Oh, and Jason. And I have a good friend. Uh, she is a, uh, an amazing photographer. Um, and uh, she's also very prolific um, in her thoughts about the world. And she would write these amazing pieces on her stories and I couldn't read them fast enough and I didn't know how to stop the story <laughs> so I could read it. I'm not lying. I'm being very vulnerable. Like he has his eyes right Jason's now being, taking speed reading I'm classes being, <laughs> so he can look at Instagram stories faster. You know, but, I have a solution for that. I have a guy that's like the number one speed reading teacher in the world. But but here's the thing. I have to, I have to give you... <laughs> or you can you, just pause the story. Yeah, you so could, I yeah, finally learned. I finally learned. But here's the thing that you said that I think is is really really flipped me over the edge now and why I love why I also love Instagram is it is a window into people's thoughts and thought processes and I think when you see how someone communicates visually and me not being a very I don't think of myself as a particularly creative person um I know each post and there are few and far between uh, unfortunately for me still but when I'm posting um on Instagram I I know I go through a different thought process than I do if say I was tweeting or um and I do think that's a really interesting kind of at the end of the day you know we're social creatures and beings mm-hmm. and understanding how someone thinks about the world thinks about life uh, I really do feel like Instagram. You you said it. I, that's what it does for me. Is I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like this person, I follow this 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 buddy of mine who just is just posts memes in such a like just a 
he's just ruthless. These memes are so good. And he Each nails one it. He nails, nails it. it every I love, time. I love people that can do that. Nails it. And his stories will just be memes for for days. And I and I literally go hunting for his stories. Can looking we say to who see. this is? Um, is uh, it private or is it public channel? That's a good question. I actually don't know. Someone <laughs> might have to show me how to even tell. Oh yeah. Memes are a different language. They're an they absolutely are, different I mean, language. they are a different language. But I, I was thinking about this the other day. To be able to share your thoughts in you know in a visual way like that has opened up i think a whole new line of communication for a lot of people i just speak for myself it has for me well i mean i mean from the so from the business side though because there is there there's a line that i do draw between my private life on instagram and my business life on instagram and i do a lot of coaching and training around how to do that um but recently um i hired a graphic designer because um her work is is phenomenal but there's a lot of phenomenal designers out there right but the reason I hired her is because I saw her killing it on Instagram and she was using hashtags and she was the only one that was using the right hashtags that allowed me to actually discover her. And when I reached out to her, I said, my goodness, you know, you're the only designer in the space in Chicago that's actually leveraging Instagram effectively. I need to hire you for a project I'm working on. And another story I have around that is another business I just recently hired from Canada um, he actually put an Instagram story that said, you know, I don't know why I'm on Instagram. I never got, I've never gotten any business from Instagram. It's it's a piece. It's a waste of time. What am I doing here? But I ignored that because it was hilarious that he wrote that because I was looking at how he was curating his content and how he was sharing his expertise and showing all the work he was doing with his business. And I needed him to do my business. And I had a specific hashtag that I was doing a search for. And boom, I hired him. And he literally said back to me, did you really just hire me from Instagram? And I said, yes, I did. You bring up actually a really important point, and I that comes back to supplier diversity, which is we said business is relational, and I think what social media and across all platforms, and, and you know, it's not just about Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, we want to do business with people that we like, for better or for worse, and one of the ways now that we curate that community is on social media. Yeah. And I think you have to. this actually happened. I was looking for a minority-owned business or a, a diverse-owned business uh, that could help me with some software development. And I searched, you know, there's databases that exist in the supplier diversity space that are really useless for a lot of what we're trying Absolutely to figure out. Absolutely useless. So I went, of course, to my favorite place to start. I went to Google. <laughs> and then I went to Facebook and I searched for chatbots. Literally, I typed in the word chatbot, minority-owned. And on Facebook, a website pops up – excuse me, a, a Facebook uh, a page pops up for a minority-owned chatbot builder. But what was interesting was on Facebook, on if you own a business and you have a business page, you can um, link your user profile, your profile, your personal profile as an owner of the business. And the owner of this business happened to be – we happen to have a mutual friend in common on Facebook. And I like this mutual friend. I had a lot of respect for this mutual friend. Now, I didn't know the relationship between this business owner, my, our mutual friend, um, you know, but I, it was a signal. And I think when we're looking to do business with anyone, you know, you just want to have as many positive signals because um, you're entering into a relationship that you don't know the outcome of. And that curation, that ability for social media to actually show what some of those connections are that you would have literally never, it wouldn't have come up in conversation. Oh, you know, Jamie and I know Jamie and that would have never come up in our conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the other thing too, around the signal. So um, when I think about 
your platform, which is Facebook and Instagram, and I'm, you know, Facebook is a huge ecosystem. There's other opportunities in that space, but um, you've also got to be looking for signals for people that actually understand your company because you are looking for suppliers that understand how to do business with you. So one of the challenges that I find um, with some other suppliers when I when I do coaching and training around this is you have to get to know the business really well. You have to get to know the people that are running the spaces, especially in supplier diversity, because they have a real small lane, a sliver lane in a large company. And oftentimes the funding isn't as great as it is in other spaces. I mean, the veteran space is funded much Broad, more broadly, because of you know the government contract space, but um, you've really got to know what you're what you're what you're doing. And, and the chatbot guy, I'm so excited to hear that you found him. Did you end up hiring this company? Yes, we did. And did you have a conversation around how you found them? Yes, we did. And what did they say? <laughs> Uh, he was like, look, you know, I put my stuff out there and, you know, you have all these different digital surfaces and I'm trying to leverage all of them and I'm glad it worked. So he should actually come in and have a talk around this and, and to our podcast and we need to interview him and find out how do you help other small, not using the word small, Jason. Thank you for doing that. I'm never going to yeah. use the word small anymore. Well, but wanna, how do we I'm get him in? Another word, but- Let's think of another word. But how to get him in to have this conversation because this yeah. is something that I think is missing. And I and I say this because we're in the technology space of extreme acceleration. So when I consider trying to do business with Coca-Cola, which is a historic, you know, um, I don't want to use the word antiquated because it's not, but they are looking at World War II supply processes and they do have legacy relationships. They haven't, they've been around 50 million times longer than Facebook, right? And Google and Twitter and companies like that. So they have, you know, it's, they have very, very staid processes that are very challenging to break. But but the tech companies are different. You know, you know, some of the tech companies don't even have a centralized procurement process. You know, there's people like you that are out in the spaces. A lot of the larger companies that are part of the billion dollar roundtable, they don't really have the freedom to have relationship development that you do. And that's partly because they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. You know, so so these 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 companies now. Um, that are trying to do business with a company like Facebook and Google, and they're older and they've been around longer, and they are maybe doing business with, um, um, you know, the McDonald's of the world. It's tough for them to come through to go do business with Facebook. I'm, I mean, I have many conversations. How do we do business with Google? What does this look like? I don't understand it. How do we work with Facebook? How do you even get to Twitter? Where is Silicon Valley? I mean, nobody's really asking that, but you see what I'm saying, Jason. No, I do. And I think, you know, that at, at some level, there's nothing new under the sun. Like, it's knowing your customer. If you want to sell to Coca-Cola, go ahead. Know that they're going to approach it a certain way. If you want to try to sell to Facebook, that's why we spend the time we do out in public talking about how we buy, the ways in which you can engage us, um, because we want people to have a shot. Um, that doesn't mean you will win. But we want people to know that we, we, we don't want lack of knowledge to be the thing that keeps people from thinking um, that they potentially could help us in our mission um, to bring the world closer together, give people the power uh, to build community. Um, we don't want people to think that that's unattainable to them. Now, it may practically be. They may not be a business that uh, right, wins right. business with us. Right. But it won't be if if we can help it. It won't be because they didn't know they had an opportunity. And that was a something that was drilled into me with the Super Bowl work. We did not want businesses to say, well, the Super Bowl came and went, and I didn't even know I could have provided um, 
you know, scrim to the, to the, to the fencing that was going to go around, um, you know, all these different sites. Uh, we went out very early on and very proactively and frequently. Um, I went on radio shows. I went to the churches. We went wherever we thought business owners would want to hear the message that the business was open. The Super Bowl was open for business and we're trying to do the same thing at Facebook. Thankfully, we have a product that allows us to do that. We use Facebook Live. Um, we try to communicate, um, again, in all the channels that we have to make sure that people know about the opportunity. So, um, yeah, you talked about, you're talking about a lot of kind of soft things like going to the radio and going out in the community and things like that. And you said something really important. You want people to have a shot. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get the business. So with that being said, how are supplier diversity efforts generally measured in this field when it doesn't always necessarily mean that a diverse-owned business gets the contract? And how does actually Facebook measure? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And there's the very typical straightforward measures of how much are we spending with uh, certified diverse owned firms. And, and we published that annually in 2018. It was a little over 400 million, which was uh, up from 230 million the prior year. Um, but that's spend and that's really not a very um, elegant measure of what we're trying to create, which is economic opportunity. And so we also look at when we do compete things, are diverse suppliers, uh, qualified diverse suppliers included in that? Even if they're not winning, are we increasing that opportunity? Now, as a relatively new program, we're still pushing towards a place where that would be um, uh, more uh, – that would be more required. That would be a requirement of all of our uh, of all of our competed opportunities. The the challenge that we and other companies like us face is we tend to not do a lot of uh, RFPs. We certainly don't do a lot of public RFPs as if we were a public organization or the government. And so for us, the good news is that creates a lot more entry points. Everyone at Facebook is a buyer, so it creates a lot creates a lot more entry points into the company. So we work with a lot of very small companies. I will say specifically the word small because they are small. There may be a single person or a small team, um, but they provide a good or service that we need and they have an entry point. They have a relationship or a connection. Now, it's our job as a supplier diversity team to help try to make as many of those connections happen as possible. Um, but because we buy in a decentralized way, because we're growing as a company, one of the things that we're trying to do more of is codify in the way when we do formal opportunities is actually codify, um, have we included qualified diverse suppliers? I think the other thing is, as a very data-driven company, uh, one of the things I am excited about is internally we have uh, dashboards that anyone in the company has access to that show not just where we are from the perspective of spend and numbers of suppliers and how they break down by diversity type, but actually allow people to look in their own team, in their own organizations, to have leaderboards of which teams, which organizations are, are spending the most or are uh, using the most supplier, diverse suppliers. And what we hope is the combination of having the data available, so being able to point to this is what's actually happening – and then an environment where these diverse suppliers are not just winning business, but they're actually – we're telling that story in a powerful way. And we're creating the tools that will allow people to find qualified diverse suppliers and engage them. All those things taken together, we hope, um, will not just propel those numbers up and you know up and ahead, but will actually build this into the DNA of our company. And as a relatively small company, I do realize that that is a privilege we have, that some of those older companies that have been doing this a long time, they're actually having to – upend their systems. We're building ours from scratch.
Yeah. And, you know, I have one last question for you, Jason. Um, You know, you are in a really, all people that are in supplier diversity in large corporations are in tough spaces. There's usually one or two of you, you know, I mean, that's it. Like you're just, that's, you're it. And so everybody sort of says, oh, there's Jason, the black guy. Let's just dump it all on him. I mean, really, I mean, really. And so what I'm, what I'm wondering is there's, there's two folds in my question. One, are you given the freedom to innovate and provide ideas and strategies at a very, very high level? Are you, um, and a result of that, I'm assuming if that's, if that's a yes, it's, you must be funded. Um, and two, how are you able to manage your own mental health around the, um, inevitable exhaustion that takes place when you are in supplier diversity. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is I came into my interview for Facebook and I said, I don't want to build a supplier diversity program. And they kind of looked at me funny because they said, well, that's what we're hiring you to do. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. I said, you know, hear me out. Um, because previously I was coming off, I was rolling off the Super Bowl experience. I had had an intern that summer and I told Hassan, Hassan was my intern. I said, Hassan, promise me. You will never go into supplier diversity. Now, it wasn't because I didn't believe in what supplier diversity was. I just knew that here was this young guy who still had his whole career ahead of him. And for him to go into a role where, by the definition of your title, when you walk into rooms, most times you get one of two responses. You get the eyes rolling back in the head because here comes someone's going to slow down my process, who's going to add more cost to my my bottom line, um, or who wants me to do something that I don't want to do. Uh, or you get, and thankfully, I think this is probably the better of the two cases, you get people that just literally have no idea what that is. So that creates an opportunity. And at Facebook, you know, we have a relatively young company, not a lot of people who have had exposure to supplier diversity. So it really gave me and, and our team the chance to create the narrative. And so to kind of the mental health thing, I think the question is, how do I continue to inspire people that we're not doing this to have a supplier diversity program. We're doing this because our mission, Facebook's mission, mm-hmm. is to build community, bring the world closer together, give people the power to do that. And part of the way we do our mission is by bringing these amazing, talented businesses into our ecosystem, help them helping us do that mission. And at the same time, we're closer to them. And frankly, that's why our mission statement, as long as it is um, at the beginning, is to not only help diverse-owned uh, businesses compete for and win business with Facebook, but to also do business with the people and communities that Facebook connects. Because as we've talked about, Facebook and our our various products are used by businesses to reach the customers that matter to them. And so the vision has always been to do something that went well beyond Facebook. And that's what has been my motivator from day one, gotcha. has been to do something that actually helps many, many more businesses that are trying to create opportunities for their their themselves, their families, their employees, their communities, create that access and help them actually connect to the opportunities that propel them and their communities forward. Thank you so much, Jason, for sharing all of your knowledge with us. As a business owner, how can people get in contact with you? And with Facebook, 
essentially? Yeah, so there's a number of ways you can stay connected uh, to us and connect to us. Um, I'll throw out a couple of very uh, practical ways. You can follow our page on Facebook, Facebook Supplier Diversity. So at FB Supplier Diversity on Facebook. And I say that also because you can message our team directly through our page. So if you have a question for us, if you want to share your capabilities with us, you can do that directly through uh, our Facebook page and that will come to the whole team. I would also uh, suggest you follow us on on, on Instagram um, at Facebook Supplier Diversity. And then uh, you can reach us uh, through email at supplierdiversity at fb.com. And again, I have a small team, but we uh, actively stay on top of all those channels so that we can stay connected to you, that we can learn about your companies and uh, potentially do business together. This has been an amazing conversation, Jason. Thank you for spending some time with us. Um, I'm sure a lot of people get value out of this because you certainly answered a lot of questions that I had that you know I could only speculate as to the answers. So this is an amazing episode. I'm Astrid Coro. And I'm Ginger Birkenbiel, and we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbiel and Estery Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. 